This is Anthony Anarino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Have you ever had a salesperson or a sales organization give you the awesome gift of a coffee mug with their logo on it? Or maybe you are a salesperson and you work for a sales organization and you provide your prospective clients or your dream clients with a coffee mug with your logo on it. I just met Andrew, the CEO of PFL at the Sales 2.0 conference in San Francisco, California, put on by my good friend Gerhard Schwantner, the CEO and publisher of Selling Power magazine. And Andrew took the time to show me a new app called Swag IQ. And Swag IQ is integrated into your salesforce.com and it's integrated into your existing sales workflows. And what Swag IQ does is it allows you as a salesperson to trigger a gift based on a prospect's behavior. That means when they move into a different stage of the sales cycle, you can go ahead and send something when they get there. So as a salesperson or a sales leader, you never have to worry about picking the gift, packing the box, and the entire fulfillment process happens offsite. And all you have to do is click the button or let it trigger automatically. But Swag IQ is interesting because it goes a lot further than just fulfillment. It bridges the gap between digital and physical by alerting the salesperson within minutes of the gift being delivered. And you can send one gift to a particular prospect if that contact is important to you, or you can schedule what's called a swag bomb to hit the entire team at your target account. And then if you're in major account sales and you're working on what I would call a dream client, everybody gets something all at the same time. Swag IQ tracks the engagement rate for you, it tracks the response rates, and it tracks the effectiveness so you know which gifts are working and where they're working. Swag IQ clients are seeing great results with one area that I think is super important to note here. It's opening doors. And that, in my opinion, is the most difficult thing we do in sales now is opening relationships. It's most difficult to get that first appointment. And Swag IQ could be something that helps you do that. So check them out at swagiq.com and see how you can begin using intelligent gifting solutions that integrate into your Salesforce app. One of the reasons I even have a podcast is because Chris Brogan called me and told me that I needed a podcast because many of the people that read the blog have 45 minutes of uninterrupted time with nothing to do while they drive to and from work, or in your case, if you're a salesperson, in between your office and sales calls. I started that podcast at his direction, and I started the newsletter at Chris's direction. And Chris, in my opinion, is always far, far ahead of the curve when it comes to building community, when it comes to using the web tools, and when it comes to understanding how to help businesses succeed on the internet using especially the social tools, but even more than the social tools. I invited Chris to join us here again to talk about building communities on the web, to talk about what tools are important right now and what tools he thinks are not worth our time or attention, and a whole lot of other things. Chris Brogan, my good friend in the arena. Chris Brogan, how are you? Best I've ever been. How about you? I'm wonderful. You are the best you've ever been. 
And you've been great for a long time. I just like to think of it as, you know, an opportunity to, to tread water on level of bestness. And so that's where I am. <laughs> that's good. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and I want to start, I want to go back a ways because I've known you for a long time now. You were on the web and building communities long before most people were even aware of that's what the internet and this toolkit we use now enables. What did you notice that allowed you to begin building community long before most other people were even aware that that's what this toolkit was going to enable? So I'm pretty darn old school. The, the one piece of you know digital street cred that I don't have is I was not part of the well, which was like a really early on internet kind of a thing. But way before that even was bulletin board services. And so I don't remember when we got our first home computer, but one of the things my dad said is, hey, you know, we can get like a modem. We can connect to these things called bulletin board services. I was like, yeah, cool. I'm down, dad. Let's figure it out. So we do. And the bulletin board service would be like, it's all text. And so imagine it's kind of like Twitter, but you got to dial up a number. You have to wait for the phone to connect to those old fashioned emotem sounds. And then you connect to this board and they would have sort of different themes or something. And there could be like a discussion forum, like old fashioned forum software. And so someone might say, yeah, that new Star Wars movie stunk, you know, Return of the Jedi is nothing like Empire Strikes Back. This is stupid. And people, you know, then I'd have to hang up after I wrote my opinion about that and wait for someone else to show up and give them their opinion, you know? So it was very old timey. But what I experienced early on, I was in my early teens when I first ever dialed into a bulletin board service. This is before AOL even. AOL was like this amazing thing when it showed up. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm now not limited to the same three conversations that I have in my little town in Maine, which was, you know, Van Halen versus Led Zeppelin. My answer was Van Halen. Mustang versus Camaro. I was a Camaro guy. And were the Sox actually going to win the World Series this year? Didn't care. My answer was always no. So that was it. You just opened up another conversation that we have to have at least a minute of it. Are you still Van Halen over Led Zeppelin now? I am, but I would say <laughs> the reason defies any logic. Anyone, like an 11-year-old who has no idea either band's real lineage could probably argue me into agreeing that Led Zeppelin's the better band, but I was a Van Halen guy. So, I mean, we can agree that Eddie Van Halen is bar none, like the most technically amazing guitarist of that time frame. It doesn't mean he's the most soulful, but he's the most technically amazing. But Robert Plant versus David Lee Roth, and then that whole band versus Van Halen, as far as song creation quality goes, it has to be Zeppelin. But I was just a Van Halen fan. It was the very first song of theirs I heard was Unchained. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing in the world. Not realizing that Michael Anthony plays like essentially six notes on the entire song. <laughs> But, you know, at the time, it was like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he doesn't even need to use the other hand on the guitar. He just can strum that note and drink, which is probably why they wrote it. I will. I'll do the research on this and put it in the show notes. But on terrestrial radio, when you look at classic rock stations and the songs that are played most frequently, Van Halen is the second most played band ever including right now, they're still the second most played band, most frequently played. I think they're behind Led Zeppelin, but I'll have to check the fact on that. So wow. you picked, I think you picked one and two, but Van Halen's definitely up there because I've seen David Lee Roth brag about it on his YouTube his show, show, which is, yeah, worth watching or listening to. Yeah. 
Well, you know, one last note about that is that the other difference between Zeppelin and Van Halen was that Led Zeppelin took themselves a little more seriously and they had like sort of thought provoking music and Van Halen was sort of like a party band. And I wasn't exactly a party guy, but I just really loved the way the songs made me feel and all that, you know, women and children first or ice cream man and all that. I mean, he was just very fun and capricious. Whereas Robert Plant seemed like he was a Dungeons and Dragons wizard and like I could get transmogrified into something if I listened for too long. It's funny about that because I'm thinking about the state of America right now and America could really use Van Halen. I mean, I, I think that's what America needs more than anything right now is somebody to come and start the party and you need David Lee Roth. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I think that's true. What's changed since you started creating content and I'm going to say serving a community of entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and businesses from when you started what do you think is the most different between now and then? It's a really good question. I, I would say that, you know, when I turned this all around to business and when I started realizing there was magic in this old silk hat and, you know, we could really do some cool stuff with community tools and content tools. First off, blogging is so down the food chain for a lot of people. A lot of people have you know, uh, abandon their blog. I'm thrilled that you keep yours alive and well, and that, you know, it just continues to grow in strength. But so many people have like thrown their blog out the window and said, ah, forget it. I'll just write Facebook notes or medium or whatever they think is the right tool. They'll go to LinkedIn. And that's just like saying, I'll, I'll get a hotel room and start building equity in my house. You know, they're, they're renting, you know, but so that's one thing that's changed. Another thing that's changed dramatically, I would say, is that we are just more and more and more inundated with so much material and told to go to so many places to consume it. It's such a snacky culture. You know, there's nothing but finger foods now and no one ever seems to sit for a meal. And you can lament the good old days back when, you know, 5,000 words wasn't that much. But really what's gone on to be truth is that we have to accept that everyone's kind of in this snack mode and we've got to repackage our content such that people can eat it faster, even if we have to give them something deeper at some point in the, in the process. I'm going to follow up that question with another question. But before that, I write a newsletter on Sunday. I took that idea from somebody who started sending me newsletters on Sunday and it worked out pretty well. But I sent out a newsletter that might have been 800 words. And I got two notes back, which is not a lot of anecdotal evidence, but both of them said, this is too long to read. And <laughs> I'm thinking we're in deep, deep trouble when 800 words is too much for somebody to read. But I think that you're right. That's where we are, is that you know, 300 words is the right amount of words, even though you can't really say a lot in 300 words, or at least you can't give a deep dive into to any subject. I've watched you over the last, I'm going to say few months, You've been producing more live stream content on Facebook. And my idea around content personally is that it's supposed to hang around and live for a long time and create future value. But now it seems like content is being produced, not like it's supposed to live forever, but that it is supposed to be like in this moment, it's a snack. So it's short, it's raw. In the case of Snapchat, it disappears. What do you think about these new mediums? Do you like the new mediums? Do you like Facebook live stream for your business personally? And do you think it's going to be valuable for businesses? So I have no interest in Snapchat. I keep trying, but it's also like such an unlevel playing field. The average user can't do anything like those cool stories that the publishers are allowed to do at the top. 
And I like looking at the stuff that they put in there, like Wall Street Journal and those kinds of things. I can't believe that I like it, but I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. That's the only thing that's interesting. Whereas every other tool, I'm much more interested in seeing how you or I would put something up there. It's just an unlevel playing field. Like we're not allowed the same tools to create those kinds of stories that way. And so I don't know. I never liked it much to begin with. I always, I, I came off on the wrong foot with it. There's no way to click anything in there, which makes me a little pissy because as a marketer, I want people to take a next action. Yeah. If you can't buy something, then it's not a marketing tool. It's a presence tool or whatever. So I'll let every, other people have Snapchat. Facebook Live, the way I use it is a little different than a lot of people. I've, I've really been back and forth on whether or not I want to create some sort of style guide that I wish more people would use in Facebook Live because it's so weird how many people will sit around looking blankly at the screen for like one or so minutes until they get enough people waiting for them. <laughs> but then in playback mode, it's essentially like a very unflattering picture of someone's human head <laughs> quietly just looking around for a minute and a half. And I'm like, what do you really think is happening right now? This is a, it, uh, a demonstration video of resting bitch face. Yeah. And it's, un I, I'm not going to say, I almost said his name, but I was watching this one just the other day and I was, I didn't even realize it was a Facebook live video. I click on it. And there's just dead air and him looking awful, like awful. Like I think he smelled his own fart kind of awful. And I was just like, I just want to, I want to message him now and say, this is so unattractive. Hit delete, but whatever. So I make my videos as if I'm just trying to record a really quick clip and put it on YouTube, even though it's live. And so at some point, because I learned this when Periscope first ever came out, because people got mad at me then because I wasn't talking enough to them. Like, you know, F you, that's not what it's for. They're like, F you, that's the only reason it exists. And I was like, oh, okay. So I, on Facebook Live, will give a very short message and, and whatever. But I've rambled because I want to say one thing about it all. I think that you can use Facebook Live in a much better way than any of the other tools because video is so promoted on that platform. Video gets pulled to the top very often in their little Facebooky algorithm. And that if you keep it brief, People can snack on it the way they're used to snacking on video these days. And then I can try to convert them to somewhere else like my newsletter. And so that's kind of what I've been doing with it is it's, I've made it just another lead magnet to my newsletter. So you're, you're sort of playing off of Facebook's war with YouTube to try to do more with video. And so the algorithm's oh, yeah. going to let you, you, you get a little bit of a bump there naturally because they want you to do well with video. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's weird because it's so funny if you, if you really start looking at the algorithm wars, because Facebook is like, please God, just make any video on here. YouTube <laughs> has a whole other algorithm, which is please make long video. Like out of the top 100 YouTubers right now, it's like 80 something percent of them are let's play video game people. Yeah. Because people like my daughter will watch hours of contiguous content on YouTube if it's let's play video game guys. And so those guys are inordinately much more successful because that's what YouTube needs for their advertising purposes. What Facebook needs is please God, just get off YouTube and come over here and we'll figure it all out later. I think and it's so, working. Yeah, I think it is. And I think we can play you and I and the businesses can play that game. If someone said to me right now, I've got a gun to your head, you got to pick YouTube or Facebook, I would pick Facebook. I'm with you on Snapchat. Everyone in the social media community talks about Snapchat like a B2B play. And mm -hmm. it's just not. I, I don't see it. And I think when, you know, in my world, when people are making a complex, risky, strategic, multi-million dollar decision, they're not going to Snapchat to figure out who they're going to buy from. And I think if you're a social media consultant and you talk about 
stuff like that with people who could put something at the top, there's probably a conversation to be had for a B2C play, but I just don't see it. It looks like a children's toy. It's funny. I have twin 16-year-old daughters, and I said, are you bored with Snapchat? And they said, no, it's our favorite. We absolutely love it. I said, will you still be there when your mom and I are on? And they said, no, we'll absolutely leave. When the adults start taking over, the kids start to move on and teenagers grow up. So I think that's going to have a, that might have a shorter shelf life than some people think, but I don't see it mm-hmm. as a great business play. Let's, since we're, we're here, you abandoned Twitter, true? No, but I'm not as married to it as I used to be. I just went on there today and, and did an experiment though. I went and really targeted a bunch of people to talk with very specifically to see if anyone would ever reply. And the lion's share of people didn't. The other thing is, so just raw numbers wise, 350,000 or so people follow me on Twitter. If I tweet something there with a link to it, I will get no more than 60, 60 clicks, you know, on a great day, 60 clicks. My newsletter, which is only 36,000 people, I'll put the similar link and I'll get 4,000, 8,000, 12,000 clicks. So, you know, if you just look at the scale of that, that tells you what Twitter's bigger problem is. Twitter has a purpose. You know, Evan Williams has just recently been walking around saying, well, this is a real-time news platform. This is a real-time news platform. I've been saying that since when we got it in 2006. And I was like, this is great. You could, it's like your own mini Bloomberg device. You could do some really cool stuff with it. But as a marketing tool right now, it is absolutely fitfully ineffective for a lot of people. I think to sort of get people's attention and whatnot, it's really gone into a, a spiral. I think, however, Anthony, the thing I always like to tell people about Twitter is that you could really cobble something cool together with it if you helped educate your buyers, especially in something like B2B. You could really make a nice system out of using Twitter if you helped them set it up the way that you want them to consume it or whatnot. And then you could probably market through it. But it's a bit like a pomegranate. You know, you, you got to do a little bit of work to get the fruit out of it now. It's still my favorite. And I I wish the engagement was higher like it was in 2007, 2008. Yeah. I'm not sure that's coming back. I wish it would, though. No, I see all signs pointing to no. Not to devolve this show because you have a so much more intelligent audience, but Pokemon Go is set to pass Twitter in the second week of its existence, two weeks in, and it's going to have more users than Twitter has since 2006. So that pretty much sums up my feelings on Twitter's current problems and stumblings. You are always way ahead of the curve on what's next. And a lot of times you've said things and I'm, I'm thinking he's lost his mind. Yeah, it's not going to work. And then things tend to work out. You're prescient. You were talking about email lists when people were talking about social media and saying social media is just going to under index your email list dramatically. And now everybody sort of agrees with that. And they believe that now. I remember when we talked about podcasting years ago, you were way ahead on the curve. So I want to ask you, what do you think about email as a channel now for communicating with your community and that call to action that you were just talking about? And where do you think podcasting is now? Is it waning or is it just at the beginning point? It's hard for me to tell what that's going to look like in the future. What's your guess? So email is just so alive and well. However, it requires a great deal of surgery to make that a true statement. My email, 78% of my revenue comes from email. So I can tell you that part of that is force of will. Part of that is it is such an effective and powerful tool. No one jumps up in the morning and says, I'll see if anybody's mad at me on Snapchat. 
you know, because your significant other or the boss or the client or whatever, they're not Snapchatting or tweeting or whatevering their disdain for you. That only shows up in email and text. And as we are still loath to trade SMS messages for email in this society, that means email is still the outcome winner. And I would say that what needs to happen though, there's a, there's a huge overhaul that has to happen in how people do email. You can't send the same message to every single buyer. Even Amazon realizes that they have to do more and more list segmenting now. Segmenting smart you know, use of database tools and all that are where it's at. Even if you're just a solo business, if you're a solo salesperson, there's a huge difference between your occasional buyer, your frequent buyer, you know, your problemed buyer, and you can't just keep sending the same message to everyone anymore. So dynamic content, dynamic information segmented is what's going to save everyone's life with things like email. And I know, you know, some very non-technical person heard this and just fell asleep, but it's not nearly as hard as it sounds. It's as easy as saying, imagine you got like 10 little buckets you want to put people in. And you say, well, this is my best customer, so I'm going to send him something a little different than I sent the other guy. And it means writing 10 smaller parts and then one bigger part, and then it all just gets put together. It's not hard at all. So that's where that is. Podcasting is a weird animal. There's a glut of podcasting in some ways because there's a lot of people saying this is a great thing and you should be there. There's a dearth of podcasting in some ways because people try it and then they quit. There's just no staying power for a lot of people. When I got into podcasting in 05, it was a year after podcasting became a thing at all. And we were all out of it by mid 06 or something like that, because two things, one was that internet video started getting popular. Two is that the mainstream came and kind of took over the charts. You know, iTunes was much more interested in courting the mainstream. Then what happened is somewhere around 2013 or so, around the age of Mark Maron's WTF pod, his example brought a lot more people, independent people back to podcasting. And they said, holy crap, we can, we can totally jump over the velvet rope here and, and be the biggest name, even though we're not in the sort of mainstream world. And that's true. But now that people have seen that a bunch of times, there's a new wave of people trying to commercialize on the process. And so there's another fight going on with kind of old, you know, the guys who run Westwood One radio station are in there with Adam Carolla making their own version of a podcasting system that they think will be like Westwood translated over. I think what comes next is another shaking out, another kind of, you know, people who aren't trying hard enough quitting. And then people who think they can just take the old terrestrial radio model and bring it over to podcasting will quit. And then what comes next are people who can do sort of multi-band cast type stuff where they switch between video and audio and all kinds of other platforms without us feeling too weird about it. And I think that that's kind of next. And I think that any business to business person who's not looking at some kind of steady state podcast, I mean, we still have commutes, we still have treadmills, we still have dogs we got to walk. There's a, still a lot of great places where good quality audio content is valuable. And I think that to say, well, you know, it's not my thing is to miss a real opportunity for channel development and lead generation. My first podcast was January 28th, 2013 with my first guest, Chris Bogan. So there you go. It's a weird guy. <laughs> was then. Let me ask about your disciplines because you, as long as I've known you have produced a lot of content and you produce a lot of words and you have serious disciplines and you have boundaries around when and how you work. So what's your typical morning routine like and what's your output like now in the way of content production? 
so I have a process that we use called the 20 minute plan. And in that process, basically the 20 minute part of that reflects on two things. One is that use 20 minutes in every single day to really set up your day for success and, and really plan where you're going to go with it all and review it at the end. We also do this thing called the nine box, which is you take three hours of time and you split it into a bunch of 20 minute segments. And that ends up being three sets of three 20 minute blocks. So that's why we call it the nine box. It looks like a one side of a Rubik's cube in that. I write the things that I need to get done in 20 minute blocks. So if I need 40, then I obviously just take two that will most progress my business forward. And so not client work, not to-do list stuff, but priority and goal stuff. And that is the most important part of every single day that I work. So in every single day that I work, because content creation is part of my business, very ingrained in my business, you know, this is not the same for everyone. I might write a blog post. I might write a newsletter. Today, I wrote some sales pages for some upcoming webinars I'm doing. I'm always producing thousands and thousands of words a day. It's around 2,500 to 4,000, depending on if I'm working on a book. There's that. I do one podcast episode a week. Sometimes I don't. I'm not religious about it, but I'm, I'm not religious about it for my own testing purposes. I think that most people should stay consistent to one a week. And then as far as things like video production go, I produce some live, well, I do, I do two paid webinars every month and usually some kind of course material every month. As far as live video, like on Facebook, totally capricious. I just do it whenever I have an idea that might take five minutes to record and I just do that. So that's sort of my process. The way that lays out in any given day, I'm like a lot of people, you know, you don't know what the day is going to involve. If your kid forgets their lunch, if your animal gets sick, if you have a client come in from out of town that you weren't expecting you know, you don't really get to control your day, but I can control that I will commit to making those three hours successful. And so I can split those across the, any span of the day, as long as I just keep my timer going and keep religious about the making those three hours true. Do you stay on one task or does it help you to be more productive shifting at the end of the blocks? If I'm working on, say, like, you know, write a blog post, I'm really fast at writing a blog post, so it might only take me the 20 minutes. If it took me 40, I would just put two blocks together and write the blog post. Sometimes it's something where I want to come back to it later. Like if I'm writing my book, I might you know devote an hour to writing my book or 20 minutes or 40 minutes, but I need a break in between it, partly to shake my head loose, partly to then go back and do like a 20 minute review and make sure I wasn't writing just pure garbage. And what I do with that 20 minute review which is a trick for any kind of writing, is I read it out loud. And if it sounds okay out loud, then I've done okay. A lot of times I'll catch something that comes off sounding totally wrong out loud. And I'll go, oh, who wrote this? And so I'll split that up. But for the most part, I am fighting the biggest fight of my life to stay a single tasking person in a world full of multitaskers. Yeah, you know what I've been practicing is setting my phone down for four hours at a time. Wow. It's an incredibly long period of time, but then you realize after, I don't know, a half a dozen times, you're okay, and nothing really happened while you were gone. It's all right. Four hours is a long stretch, though. That you, is a really long stretch. I'm, I'm thinking, hmm, could I do that? And um, my, my concessions to that is that I have almost nothing that notifies me, and I have my phone doesn't make any audible sounds, and so it's only really keeping a window open for like Jacqueline and you know maybe my kids. But beyond that, you know, that, that's a, I like that practice, Anthony. It's a long time, but I think it's good for you. What's your weight training regimen like now? How many times a week are you in the gym? 
Oh, so it's interesting because I'm always messing around with that. Like I, I never stick to anything especially straightforward or long. So, I, you know, you could ask me the same question in four and a half hours and I might have a different answer. But the answer is I just started looking at this project called Tactical Barbell 2. And it was recommended multiple times. The Kindle app just kept saying, you really should probably check this book out. And I kept saying, I don't know why you keep telling me this, but uh, okay. The very first thing, it's, it's about conditioning as well as strength. And I was thinking, wow, that's interesting because I, I only do the minimum viable amount of cardio ever because there's a lot of reasons why not to do a lot of cardio. But this guy's opinion was like, you know, a lot of us aren't really well conditioned. And so we just run out of gas really fast a lot of times, even if we're just lifting or doing our thing. I said, okay, fine. So I'm on this program right now where I have to go through eight weeks of almost no lifting, like just light lifting for the most part and mostly cardio type stuff, but not treadmills and stuff like that. That's where it's a little different. So right now I'm doing this thing with rucking where you, you take a backpack and you fill it full of weights and you go out and you know hike around. And so my backpack, the rucksacks are built and come with as much as 30 pounds, but it just seemed light on a big guy like me. So I, I bought another 25 pound weight. So I'm doing 55 pounds. And so I throw 55 pounds on my back and then I go walk around my neighborhood. And two things are cool about that. One is I play a little Pokemon Go. And two is that with 55 extra pounds on your back, just walking up a hill or walking even on flat land, it gets to be part of a workout. And so I have a little heart rate monitor strapped on. I'm seeing if I could stay within this you know, aerobic window. And it's been fun, but I've got eight weeks of this kind of thing, plus swinging some kettlebells and stuff like that before I go back to full-on weight training. But I like the end result because what I'm going to try to do is get into a much more functional fitness type shape. And it's it's a process that I did in getting ready for the Spartan race one time, but I haven't gone back to since. And this was just kind of a, a way to get back to it. 55 is how much compared to what, say, an army ranger would carry in uh, their ruck? That's a really great question. So in training, they're pushed to do around 50 something pounds. But what's interesting is that the average person who's, you know, let's say in Afghanistan right now or Iraq or something like that, they can be upwards of 80 or, or 90 pounds once you include their gun, their ammunition and a bunch of other stuff that they've got to carry. So I will ultimately probably wander around with 80 pounds, uh, but it turns out, you know, uh, so there's this whole group of people at the, the platforms called Go Ruck, and they do these things with 20 or 25 or 30 pounds. And so when I said, well, I'm going to start with 50 something, they were like, you're crazy. Your body's not going to like that. And I was like, uh, what do they know? And I'm, I'm male and stupid. So I do that. But I, I would like to get to 80 not because I think I'm ever going to be fighting in any foreign war. I'm 46, so no one wants me to be their, their uh, last defense line. But I can tell you that I want to do it because I think it's interesting to imagine that not only do these people have to carry this much weight around, but they're expected to run, to sprint, to be really good marksmen, to do tactical and you know strategic thinking. And I think that there's something for an entrepreneur in being able to mimic that ability of endurance and strength. I think energy matters a great deal. I mean, when you're trying to get results through yourself and through others, energy is a big deal. I agree with that. And that, that would help. This is the lightning round, so you have to answer this question faster than you, okay. you would want to because you could go longer on this. Ben Affleck as Batman. Standalone, it would be great. I hated Batman versus Superman. Yeah, not good. 
Maybe not his fault. Script fault, I think, right? He was he was one note. There's a new solo Batman movie coming that he's going to put out and do himself with uh, Warner and all that. And he said that was so I could control all the aspects. And I think that movie will make everyone eat their words. But he really just could only play one note. He had to play like, I'm mad and I'm vengeful. And he just sounded like he had a mouthful of gum. And so he couldn't open his teeth up. You talk like this the whole time. I still want to see somebody old and crusty like Nick Nolte as the Dark Knight, or I would even take Mickey Rourke now, I think. Oh, I would love either one of those. <laughs> that would be fun. What are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading a few things. I, I'm rereading Sebastian Younger's Tribe book that just came out. I read it, but I don't think I absorbed it very well. I'm reading a book called Story Grid, which is Stephen Pressfield's publishing partner for their Black Irish Press, whose name I'm not going to remember, uh, about writing fiction. And I think there's a lot of lessons inside there. I'm reading a graphic novel called DMZ, which is an oldie, but a goodie. And I'm reading one called Raising Men, which I forget the author's name, but he's a Navy SEAL. And it's uh, lessons that SEALs handed down to their boys. I read an early book by Sebastian Younger. I forget the name. The other war book from uh, Afghanistan. Is this one as painful to read? No, it's a much smaller, thinner tome, but it's it's not unlike Pressfield's Warrior Ethos book and some of those types of books. Okay. The premise is that we humans all want to belong and we all want to be part of something. We all want to be sort of tribal in some way and that that's a lot of what's missing in our system and our society. And so I think it's the right book at the right time in a lot of ways for the, a lot of people. The earlier book he wrote just had me, I mean, I was consumed with dread reading what these guys go through. <laughs> I mean, it was, I felt bad the whole way. Yeah. So I'm very, very fortunate to get to talk to a lot of people in the special operator community. And when you're around them, there's this weird dichotomy that happens where, you know, you are really forced to be exposed to some really horrible, yucky truths about life. But at the same time, you're also aware of how much more you celebrate life when it's so vividly, you know, in front of you, how precious and how fragile it really all yeah. can be. Gratitude. Mm -hmm. What's the most important book you've ever read and why? The most important book I've ever read? Oh, that's a great question. Ender's Game is my answer, Orson Scott Card. And it's because it gave me the most belief and understanding of the notion that perception is not what you think it is. Like you can shift perception and you can really reframe everything. It's basically Covey's first habit just over and over and over again. Great book. A great book for leaders too. It's actually on the Marines reading list. When I can see that. Yeah, they they sort of as you you have to lead, and uh, they sort of trick Ender into that. If you've never read the book, totally worth reading. Who's had yeah. the biggest influence on your thinking? Tom Peters in the '90s. Tom Peters wrote a lot of really interesting books and articles that just really pushed me to change a lot of how I looked at things and how I approached things. Me too. A big one for me. What books specifically can you name? Interestingly, they're sort of his least popular ones. The Brand U 50 was one of them. The one right after In Search of Excellence, the name I'm totally not remembering. His Reimagine was one of my favorites. Thriving on Chaos or Liberation yes. Management, one of those two. Yep. And then uh, his uh, Reimagine book, which was like a, almost like a coffee table style book. I mean, I, I loved it. When I finally met him and spoke with him, it was all I could do not to gush the whole time and try to actually act like a peer every now and again. Yeah, I interviewed him once and it was great. He flattered me by saying, you've actually read all my stuff. And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, I have. What's your most important life lesson to date? 
You know, it relates to the same advice that I always give people, which is be helpful. I can tell you that as a guy who suffers depression, the, what always gets me back out of the hole is remembering to go be helpful to other people, which then, you know, gets my mind off of my own junk. So it's it's a good business lesson. Your whole mindset of value add is very tied to that idea of being helpful. Yeah. If you weren't doing the work that you do now, what would you be doing? I'd probably be homeless or something. Um, I, you know, it's a good That's question. the hardest I job mean, on earth, I'm sure. Yeah, I would say. I would say it's a, a huge gig. The only answer that comes right to mind is I'd probably be writing, but I'd write fiction instead. Interesting. I interviewed uh, Dave Allen a few weeks ago, and he said he would be either a waiter in a really, really nice restaurant, or he'd be arranging flowers. Oh, um, I love uh, that. Which is sort of, sort of a Zen kind of thing. Final question, and you have two minutes. What do you hope to be remembered for? That's a great question. I hope it's that like amazing magic trick I pull off when I make something disappear. No, I don't know. I, it, I guess, you know, it, when people are hanging out at my funeral and they're drinking some beers, I hope that they say, man, that guy was so nice. And he was like really helpful. And he just really made me feel like I mattered. I guess that's probably the one thing we'd all want someone to say of us. Probably nobody's heard this before, but I, I tell people when they ask, why do you send your newsletter on Sunday mornings? And I say, because Chris Brogan sent me his and I, I called him and said, why do you send your newsletters on Sunday mornings? And you said, because nobody else does. And I said, why right. do you not style it? Why do you just use a, like, it looks like a regular email? And you said, because I want it to be personal. And then I asked you about a half a dozen other questions and said, hey, I'm going to do the same thing. And you're like, do it. <laughs> and I said, no, I mean, yeah. I'm going to do exactly the same thing. And you said, do it. And I said, what font is that you're using? And you said, call Rob. Because <laughs> I don't know what font it is. For people who don't know you, you are one of the most helpful people. And you are always trying to find a way to give and to connect people. And I think that's why everybody loves you. Everybody loves Chris. There's a chapter of Mitch Joel's book called that. So anyway, thank you. I appreciate that compliment. And, you know, I think it's something to aspire to. I think that in the realm of things one could aspire to, that's a pretty good one to be known as helpful. Thank you for being here, my friend. Hey, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That was my good friend, Chris Brogan, one of the smartest people I know and also one of the hardest working. I want to point you to his site. It's owner.media forward slash NL. And when you go to owner.media forward slash NL, you're going to get an opportunity to sign up for Chris's newsletter, which will hit your inbox somewhere around 4.30 or 5 a.m. every Sunday morning. Chris is a masterful storyteller, and he has the ability to weave together a narrative with actionable insights that you can use. And if you're the entrepreneurial type, and if you want help gaining customers, especially using the web, you want to go to owner.media and let Chris help you. I am Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. You'll find all of those links in the show notes. You can also go to themodelsalesweek.com and get a nine-part video series when you sign up for my newsletter, or you can go to howtoplanasalescall.com and get a four-module video training course on how to plan sales calls. I'm Anthony Anarino. Thanks for joining me here, and I will see you next time in the arena.
My new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, will be released by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016, and it will be available at bookstores everywhere. But I don't want you to go to the bookstores or Amazon.com and order that book quite yet. What I want to recommend you do is go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. And this is a pre-order site that's going to allow you to collect bonuses for having ordered the book early and ordering it through this site. Even if you only buy one book, there is a bonus package available for you. In this case, it is a workbook that allows you to apply the core lessons of the 17 core chapters to your own work. So maybe you need to work on self-discipline, or maybe you need to work on resourcefulness, or maybe you need to work on prospecting. You can go through the workbook exercises and immediately improve the results that you're producing in those areas. But there's more. If you are a sales leader and you want to provide this book to your team, which I recommend, you can get additional bonuses. For an order of 10 books, you can get 17 training videos that allow you to use those videos for team meetings and align your team around whatever initiatives you want. Maybe it's closing right now, or maybe it's business acumen. Whatever the chapter is that relates to a gap that your team needs to close, you're going to find some resources there in the workbook and in the videos that allow you to notch your team up. And then if you want to get insane, there are massive bulk buys available to you. If you buy a thousand books, I'm going to do a keynote for you. And for some lucky buyer who orders that many books, you're going to get a keynote from me that I will also include Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, and Mike Weinberg as speakers at your sales kickoff event. So go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. That is preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Pick up a copy of the book now. It will be delivered to you in the middle of October and pick up the bonuses. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.